We started in John chapter 14 last week, and we're going to be here in these passages for a little while, still continuing on how Jesus was moving toward the cross, how he, in this chronology, Jesus is still moving hour by hour and day by day, closer and closer to that moment when he will lay down his life for us. But as I shared with you last week, these are unusual passages in 14, 15, 16, and 17, because Jesus understands that he's about to be crucified. He has understanding now of what is transpiring fully. His disciples don't yet, and you can tell by the the questions that they're asking, asking questions, trying to gain understanding. But they're sitting in front of Jesus, just his disciples, and he starts this conversation with them that has to probably be one of the most intimate conversations that a person could have, knowing, first of all, his outcome, knowing the responsibility that these men were about to carry, trying his best to teach them the things that they would have to have first. So everything he says here is with urgency. Everything he says has importance. As we said last week, starting this, the disciples begin to ask him questions. The further you get into 14, 15, and 16, and even into 17, you realize the questions stop. They're simply sitting there at Jesus' feet, in front of him, listening not to just his mouth, not to just his mind to teach. They're listening to his heart. There's no way for these things to come out of Jesus that, are, that aren't fully coming from the impact of the reality of this moment. So the best we can as we read this, and, and again, I don't say much on these passages. I don't expound a great deal because it's almost irreverent. It doesn't require much. He was very specific, very open, very complete, very comprehensive in what he was saying. When we started last week, we started in verse 1, and Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And we stopped right there for just a moment last week, recognizing that so many here had just been prophesied over. So many here had just heard something very specific that the Holy Spirit told them about them and about their place within a destiny, not only for this church, but for a greater move that God is going to make. So every bit of this was designed to help us that we were going to receive very specific words released by the Holy Spirit into our story, and in that, some of the information was kind of overwhelming. Why does he start this verse, this part, with these words? Because he knew something. When he begins to speak, there's going to be a tendency for it to trouble our hearts. He wanted to stop that from the very beginning. And I shared with you, if the prophecy that was spoken over you or someone that you're talking to is causing them to have a stirring in them that is heavy or gloomy or dark, there needs to be a conversation because I can tell you every time Jesus is going to speak to us, it is let not your hearts be troubled. Even the correction that comes, even the times when he speaks to us correction, it is not to create trouble. It's to create freedom. Even the correction over our own kids was designed because we wanted to give them something that they badly needed. Well, God's heart, as he told them, he said, I'm fixed to tell you something, but let not your heart be troubled. I can tell you if you receive prophecy and it's uncertain what it means, let not your heart be troubled. He did not tell you to tear you down or to pull you down. He told you to build you up. 
So we're going to go where we left off last time into verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. When I was in sunbeams, we had to have a scripture memorized. Guess what mine was? If you love me, keep my commandments. <laughs> I had that one down. That's every week, same, same scripture. If you love me, keep my commandments. If I'd have known the other one, Jesus wept, I'd have used that one, because that was even shorter. Yeah. I'd use that one, but didn't know it at the time. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. This is one of those scriptures that I'm not sure how the Christian world gets around. I'm not sure how the Christian world ever has removed the reality of the Holy Spirit out of our Christian experience. Jesus is not confused. Again, remember what's going on. Remember where he is. Remember what he, the dynamic of all this going on. And Jesus is telling us, and I will pray, and I'm going to ask the Father that he will send someone. He will send the Comforter. And that Comforter will come, and he will do something. He will never leave you. Now, this has to be a, a, a powerful message because Je they're beginning to get an understanding that Jesus is going to leave. They're beginning to gain an understanding that Jesus is going to go away. So he's saying, I'm leaving, but here's what's going to happen. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth. So he's saying, this spirit, this comforter that I'm going to send is going to be called the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he shall be in you. So here, again, Jesus is telling them some profound, deep things. He's saying, I I'm going, but I'm going to send to you the spirit of truth. Now, the world can't receive him, because every bit of this is built upon a reality of understanding of faith. It is a trust and a confidence that that which is invisible is greater than the visible. We struggle with that because we put so much trust in the visible, recognizing that the invisible spoke the visible into existence, so which one had to be more powerful? I shared this with you several times, but Karen Perry's daughter, Leah, was in church with us one Sunday morning, and I got her to come up in front of me. And I said, Leah, I'm not going to blindfold you, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and then I'm going to ask you to do one simple thing in just a minute, but I want to ask you two questions first. And I said, Leah, do you trust me? And she said, yes. I said, have I ever hurt you in any way? And she said, no. Do you think I would? No. I said, so I want you to close your eyes, and I just want to ask you want to do one simple thing. She said, okay. So she's, she's standing there like this, and she's got her eyes closed, and I says, okay, Leah, just fall backwards. And she just stood there. And I said, do you think I'm going to hurt you? No. D did you say you trusted me? Yes. Fall backwards. Couldn't do it. I said, Leah, why can't you do it? She said, because your voice is still in front of me. It been very easy if my voice would have moved around behind her. But what she didn't know was that I had told her dad, I said, the minute that she steps up and closes her eyes, I want you to get behind her. She didn't know that there was an invisible provision there that had been put in there for her that she could trust more than my voice. We live in that perspective all the time. We live in the perspective of trusting what we can see, trusting what we can tangibly know it's here, more than the invisible God who spoke everything into existence. Jesus is saying the world, because they don't have the faith to see, they won't even know he's here, but you will. 
Because you'll have the eyes to see and you'll have the ears to hear. And then he says this. He says, and he will be with you, but he shall be in you. What's he beginning to talk of there? He's beginning to talk of Pentecost. He's beginning to talk about an indwelling God. One that not only comes from the outside so that you can hear him, which is what they had experienced up to this point, but he's beginning to tell them that this God that I'm talking about, this spirit that I'm talking about, is going to come and live in you. And I wish we could get this clear, clear picture that the greatness of creation was not that God built, made trees or made light. I won't diminish the, the things that were remarkable about that or separated the land from the water. That It took great power. But he did something in creation that he had never done before. He made man in his own image. So that I have, I'm Randy the body, I have a physical body. I'm Randy the soul, I have a mind and, a, and emotions, but I'm also Randy the spirit. But because Adam and Eve sinned, that spirit died. Their body was still alive, their soul was still alive, but the spirit, because of sin, was dead. What did Jesus come and do? He came to clean that box. He came to clean the sin, to deal with the sin that was in that box that had killed it and created the separation between us and the Father. Jesus came by his blood to clean the box. But why did he want to clean it? There's got to be a point to why Jesus wanted the box clean. Because he, was, he wanted us to invite somebody to come live in the box. There was a greater purpose than just Jesus coming to shed his blood, to deal with our sin so that that box could be alive again. That box needed to be clean and be brought back to life so that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, could come and live in it. That's what he's talking about. That the Spirit of God now is with you, but soon he's going to be in you. That had never happened before. The Spirit of God, the fullness of God, the enormity of God, the blessings of God, suddenly coming in the form of the Spirit to live within me. And how in the world then, reckoning with that, could I ever not see myself as enough to fight any enemy, to take on any opposition, to do anything I, I was asked, to refuse to be obedient in anything with the Spirit of God, this enormous God, coming to live in me? I wish the Christian world would reckon with that. I wish the Christian world would come into that reality and recognize that the Spirit of God has come to live within the spirit of men so that we could grasp that scripture again, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I don't know how to make it more clear. Verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more, but you see me because I live you shall live also. At that day, you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Again, I don't know how easily to bring the reality of that scripture into focus, but we're going to try for just a minute. He that has my commandments, and he keeps them. The keeping the commandments is an indication of what? Obedience. That we love him. That we worship him. We know who he is. We understand the relationship. 
he begins, he that has my commandments and he keeps them, he it is that loves me. Now I want to tell you, this is pretty important. I don't want to boil the love of God down to one verse. But Jesus makes a statement here. That if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Isn't that where we started tonight? If you love me, keep my commandments. I wonder if we could prove in a courtroom that we love the Lord by our keeping of the commandments. There shall be no other God before me. Most of us have several gods in line before him. If I had to stand in a courtroom and say and prove that I kept that commandment, that God was the only God of my life, when he says there shall be no other gods before me, remember what, we, that, what that means? That doesn't mean in order, first, second, third, and fourth, and that God just wants to be number one. That's not what it says. It says there shall be no other gods before me. He's saying in your life, just like you're sitting in here before me, in front of me, God is saying there will be no other gods in my view. Not in order, not one, two, three, four, five. There's one and I'm it. You can't have God number two. You can't have God number three. You can't worship these other things because if you do, you're not keeping this commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Adultery, whatever it is. If we had to stand and say, you can tell how much I love him by the keeping of these commandments. Could any of us in a courtroom be able to prove to somebody who was skeptical that we actually loved the Lord? Love your neighbor as yourself. Every one of those commandments could we say. I don't know how to change this. He that has my commandments, well, we, we have them, and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. So here's this dominoing effect. If you have the commandments and you keep them, then there will be a great evidence that you love my Father. And if you love my Father, my Father will come and love you. But it's got one more attachment to it. And it says, And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. What's the promise right there? For those who love the Lord... Jesus is promising, unquestionable promise. If you love me, I'm going to show up and I'm going to manifest myself to you. What happened in these prophecies? What was going on? And we shared this with a group a couple of days later. Why is the Holy Spirit so specific with details of individual lives? Why does he do that? Why isn't it kind of held at a, a generic level and say, and it, could, it still could be equally true, but why does the Holy Spirit, as he begins to speak through these women, why does he not just keep this at a generic level? It's personal, and he wants you to know, I'm here. And I used this dumb illustration a few weeks ago in the movie Ghost when Patrick Swayze is trying to get Whoopi Goldberg to convince Demi Moore that he's actually in the room when she can't see him. What does he tell Whoopi Goldberg to do? Tell her something that only I would know. Tell Demi Moore something that only I would know so that she will know that I'm invisible, but I'm in the room. And so Whoopi Goldberg tells her something. I don't even remember what it is. But suddenly then his wife knows he's in the room. I want to tell you, the reason that the Holy Spirit got personal in those prophecies is because he wants you to know I'm in the room. I will manifest myself. When I preached on this not too long ago, here, this was the example. 
If, if I have a guest in my home, someone that you don't know, and you come to my door, and you step in, the first thing I'm going to do is introduce you to this person. But how odd would it be if the guest in my home was invisible? How would then this invisible guest let this other person know that they were there? They would have to manifest themselves to them. This is prophetic evangelism at its best here. This is meeting someone, and, and this invisible guest that I have say, tell them this about themselves. I can tell you, sitting at a coffee shop several years ago, across from this young man, and he's very skeptical of anything that I'm saying, and God says, tell him to go buy a yellow shirt. That's all I heard. So I look up, and I say, Steve? God said, go buy a yellow shirt. And he leaned back in that chair, and he said, what did you say? And I said, he said, go buy a yellow shirt. And it liked to have freaked him out. See, I had no idea any significance with a yellow shirt. I had no connection with a yellow shirt. But it took him back to a moment when he was eight years old that nobody could have known, couldn't have possibly have known. What did Jesus just do in that moment? What did the Holy Spirit do? He manifested himself prophetically so that this guy across the table would know Jesus is here. Got a friend that was going out the back door and Sula caught him and told him, what happened to you when you were eight years old was not your fault. He was 52 at the time when she told him that. I was building a house when I was still building houses. He came and sat down on that porch with me that, that next day and he said, I got to talk to somebody. He said, because I've held this secret for 44 years. He said, I can't hold it anymore. He said, but Sula saw it already. At eight years old, something had happened to him that had created such shame in him that he'd carried it for 44 years. How did he know that God was in it? It was because Jesus in that moment manifested himself, told him something that nobody could have possibly known so that he would recognize that the presence of God was there. Listen to this scripture again. This is exactly what he's talking about. He wants to do it, and he wants to do it through me, and he wants to do it through you. Verse 21, then I'm going to go on. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judah said unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. What happens when we love him? What's his promise here? He said, I'm going to come for anybody who loves me, anybody who keeps my commandments, Anybody who's in that situation, my father and I will come and take up residence inside them. Not confusing. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. I'm going to stop right there and then I'm going to finish the last part. It's just the end. But there has to be within the church a major, major correction. 
if truth is, really has the power to set us free, we've got to get to the place where we can tell the truth. I don't want to say this wrong. It, I almost said there's not a whole lot of truth being told within the church today. That's not a true statement. What's being taught is true. It's just the extreme parts that are being left out. It's not the fact that what they're telling is not true. Some of it's off, but most of it is, is true. It's just there's so much of the story that they don't want to tell. There's so much truth there that, that, that needs to be told, but if you tell it, it radically changes the perspective that we have on God. And here's a big one, and I wish I had my flip chart. I'm just going to have to draw this in the air so you all pay attention. Remember what I'm writing down. Remember what I'm drawing. If I put God here in the middle of a piece of paper, just the word God, and I put a line below it and a line across above it. So God's in the middle, a line below, and a line above. Most of us, because we haven't been taught any different, most of us, because this is the way that it just kind of naturally happened, developed a view of God, developed a concept of God, starting from below that line, and I would write the word man below that line, and the way most of us developed an understanding of God is we took this man and we reasoned up an understanding of God. So we took man and we improved him. We took man and we looked at those qualities and characteristics of men and, and women and we improved them to develop a concept of God. But there's a real problem with that because man down here below this is variable. You can upset him or you can make him happy. You can please him or disappoint him based on how well you do. If you do well, you can please this man. If you do poorly, you can disappoint this man. So what happens when we begin with man and we reason up an understanding of God? We give God human qualities and we make God variable so that we, can, we, we have developed an idea of God that somehow I can disappoint him or somehow that I can work hard and please him which is 100% foolishness because what that says is I can make God react to me. I, can, I have some kind of a strange power that what I do makes God react to me. How strange a concept that is. But you know what's happened? Because we started with man and we reasoned up a, a, a view of, of God is that we get real disappointed in ourselves. We get real frustrated ourselves because we believe that somehow God is disappointed with us. That God is angry with us. He's frustrated with us. And, and Jesus is saying, in this, and he's, he's correcting that in here. He's saying that's not what the way this is going to happen. Yeah, we need to understand God. We need to have a heart that connects with God. But you'll never get it by reasoning, using your mind to reason up and understand God. The only way that you can understand God is begin with the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth, and let him reveal God to us. Because then God, that God won't have human characteristics. That God won't be a God that wavers and is variable. He'll be a God who, who loves us. He'll be a God who can say, I'll never leave you. I'll manifest myself to you. He will be a God that when we do something wrong, it doesn't make him love us less. And when we do something good, he won't love us more because his love isn't based on me. His love is based on him. He's not going to react to me. He's not wringing his hands in heaven saying, my goodness, I wish they would finally get it right. But we have allowed ourselves to reason up a version of God and he's become very small and very controllable and, and almost to the point where we can ignore him. But boy, when, when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal down 
who God is, he begins to grow in enormity. He begins to grow in power. He begins to grow in love. I've got a young man that I've been meeting with recently. I met with him this morning and I said, there's going to come a time. There's going to become a place where the God that I'm talking about is going to become bigger than your problems. Right now, that's not, that's not happening. His problems are, are big enough. They keep swallowing every, all the hope that he has. But I told him, I said, if you'll come, there will come a day, and I'll see it happen in your face, when the God that we know is big enough to take on the problems that you have. And you're going to realize he is so much bigger. That won't ever happen by reasoning God. That happens by revelation. And I do this quite often. I told him, I want you to listen for just a second. I told him about how I take my grandsons and I set them on my lap. I hold him and I say, Bennett, you are so smart. You're so kind. You're so good. You're so full of love and mercy. You're so patient. You love your brother so much. I believe with all my heart that if you speak to the treasure that's in them, you'll get the treasure. You speak to the awful, you'll get the awful. So we begin very early to say these things. If that can come out of my imperfect heart, to speak those blessings over my grandkids, I wonder what it would be like if we sat in the lap of our Heavenly Father, whose heart is perfect and love is pure, and have him to start talking about us, what would come out. And I asked this young man this morning, I said, what would God say? And he couldn't speak. Because it's so hard to turn our brain from the awful that we've believed about ourselves that people have said and let that switch go off and turn the one on where God begins to speak. But when he began to speak, it was amazing to hear him say the great things that he could say about himself. I would encourage you to do that sometime and just see how hard it is to put yourself in that position and say, I'm sitting in the lap of my heavenly father and these are the words that coming out of his mouth. Danny, you are so, and start down the list. And allow yourself to believe about you those things that God would say. What would he say, Jamie? You're beautiful. You're so smart. You're so gifted. You're so remarkable. You're so loving. Your heart is huge. I'm so proud I made you the way I made you. For so many, that's so hard to hear. It's hard to hear because we have viewed God as a man improved rather than let the Holy Spirit of truth reveal down to us who God really is. That's why we say so often it's, it's a strange form of arrogance to believe something about yourself that God wouldn't say. Well, let's, let's finish with these verses. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. Give I unto you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away. And come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater. And now I have told you before, when it comes to pass, you might believe. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandments, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Jesus said, I love the Father, so I kept his commandments. I wish and believe with all our hearts that the great desire that God sows within us is that we can say the same thing. I love the Father, and what he asked me to do, I did. I went when he asked me to go. I stayed when he asked me to stay. I spoke when he asked me to speak, and I was silent when he asked me to be silent. 
I loved because he asked me to love. I forgave because he asked me to forgive. I encouraged because he asked me to encourage. And I shared because he asked me to share. What he gave me, I did. For no other reason, but I loved him. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come to this beautiful passage so late in your life here when you just opened your heart and you began to speak to those whom you love so dearly so that they could hear from your heart, so that they could understand in, in their minds and receive in their spirit something that was so drastically new to them. Never had seen or heard anything like this. Didn't even, it's so hard to comprehend for them what you meant when you said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send someone. And that they didn't really understand that that someone was going to be invisible. That that someone was going to be someone that could come and live inside them. How hard these things had to be for them. We have it written down and we have it shared with us by the Spirit and we're still struggling over the same thing that they struggled with back then. Believing it to be true. I pray, Lord, we are in urgent times and we are in pressing times. Lord, this is a bad day to ride the fence. The days of riding the fence are kind of over. And you're calling forth those who will really believe. You're calling forth those who will really trust. You're calling forth those who will really love. You're calling forth those who will keep your commandments. And Lord, the day of, of sitting on the fence and trying to, to, to please two gods, halting between two things, that day has got to come to an end. Because you're earnestly seeking those whose hearts are fully committed to the things that you have established in front of us. Things that you have spoken, commandments that you have given, and you're looking for those whose hearts are earnest. And Lord, the day will come when that fracture will occur. And those who are committed, those who will stand, are going to rise out of, out of brokenness and rise out of hurt they're going to begin to speak truth and this world will be changed. And there will be so many who have sat on the fence trying to negotiate a position that is comfortable to get good seats for what's coming. And they're going to wonder what happened when they don't even have a view of what you're doing. I pray, Lord, for this church and for the people of this area that the day of sitting on the fence will be over. That they can't go to church anymore and sit where it's boring where the word of God is reduced to something less than what it was meant to be, where the Holy Spirit is ignored and not received, I pray, Lord, that there would be a stirring within this area, within the churches of this area, and we cannot accept, won't accept, the same old stuff that we've been standing and preaching for years and asking people to buy that has no power, that has no ability to change, has no ability to heal or to restore. It's just a good sermon that we can go home and ignore for the next six days, I pray, Lord, that that day is coming to an end. You're looking for those whose hearts are serious before you. And I pray, Lord, that you would find them in abundance. That you would find them willing and ready. Lord, within this body, others, so many others, but within this one that you have allowed us to be a steward over, I pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful. And that you would find us standing with the armor on, ready to go standing arm in arm in unity because we're listening to one spirit, hearing one truth, recognizing one power, one authority, one spirit, and moving by that spirit. Let us just get it. Let us see it and know it. Day of complacency and apathy are over. Those who are sitting on the fence, 
wherever they are, in all churches, in all denominations, in all groups, let that day come to an end. It's too urgent. There's too much work. The matters are too great. It's time for your people to stand up and let our light so shine before men that they will absolutely know that you're God. In Jesus' name, amen.